I'm Alex Perrottet. Join me for the second in our series of Awkward Conversations, a series looking at who we are and how we talk to each other about identity, race and the complex and intertwined history of the peoples of Aotearoa. I'm here in front of an audience in the distinctive Gisborne bar and music venue Smash Palace. Why Gisborne? It's the centre of the Tuya 250 Kituranga commemoration of the first contact between Europeans in the shape of James Cook and Māori. 250 years after that face-to-face meeting, I'm here face-to-face with a live audience and two special guests to discuss issues we often shy away from. So joining me here on the couch, we have Andrew Judd, former mayor of New Plymouth, uh, who had that very public, that very controversial term as mayor. And I'm sure he did a whole lot of other things besides trying to establish Māori wards, um, which a lot of people probably forget about. And, uh, and I guess for many Pākehā, um, Andrew will be uh, perhaps a, a, an uncomfortable and awkward figure, and we're going to get into that. Meredith Akuhata-Brown is on the other side there in the lounge, an outspoken Tairawhiti Gisborne councillor and candidate in the upcoming elections, as well as the uh, you know, for the DHB as well, <laughs> a community advocate. Here I am singing your praises. Very concerned about how Māori are represented here in Gisborne, uh, and obviously a very interesting personal story in discovering her own whakapapa as well, and um, that's all going to be mixed in and part of it. So please make our two guests, Andrew and Meredith, very, very welcome. <laughs> Uh, there's nothing better than a personal testimony. So we're going to start with Andrew and, and, and give us your, I guess, Alcoholics Anonymous style introduction. I just wanted to say that somebody, somebody once said to me that, um, you know, Mary's, they're lazy. Those Mary's full of jails. The Mary elite wrought the system for their own benefit. And the rest just want social welfare handouts. Mary's a tribal by nature. That's why they're so easily drawn to being gangs. Mary language is all but dead. Waste of time. Can't be used anywhere else in the world anyway. I'm sick and tired of hearing about the past. We've got to get over it and move on. In any case, we're all one now. Do you know who said that to me? I said that to me. My name is Andrew Judd, and I'm a recovering racist. Andrew, you say you're a recovering racist. Uh, I would have thought a person in your circumstances who've gone, you've gone through a, a, uh, a catharsis, really, um, you, w- you would be happy with your conversion and say, I was a racist. Why are you a recovering racist still? So for me, uh, in 2013, yes, I was elected mayor of New Plymouth. And one of my first challenges in that role was the question of Māori representation on our council. Clearly, as we've heard, we have an obligation under the Local Government Act to include Māori in government decision-making. One of the options to do that is to establish what's known as a Māori ward, which is actually similar to the Māori seats in our parliament, voted from our Māori electoral roll. Our council, my council at the time, we voted to establish a Māori ward. The reaction that I got was a reaction that not only I recognised, but I identified with. It took me on a journey of personal challenge and discovery and honesty. Why am I recovering? I was, when I'm 54, I never lived in New Zealand. I challenged how I'd been raised as a Pākehā. The emotions, the feelings, and all of that came to me with anything Māori. In fact, anything to do with any other culture 
but predominantly male in this case. I'm not proud to say that I'm a recovering racist. I'm simply being honest with who I am. What is it that's inside you that means it is so very hard to overcome? So for me, and I can only talk about myself, of course, it is intertwined with identity. Part of what I asked myself in that journey, or the continued journey, is what does it mean to be a New Zealand Pakia? Because that's who I am. I'm not British or English, Australian, or anything else. I was born here in New Zealand. I am a treaty partner to the tongue of the Whenua. What does that mean? Because what is my culture? You know, if you invited me here tonight and said, come dressed in, say, your national costume, Andrew, what would I wear? A black singlet, black shorts with red band gumboots? Well, I'm not a farmer. What do I wear an All Blacks jersey? Well, I'm not an All Black. What's my culture? Is it Buzzy Bees to pub ice cream? I mean, those things are a job, a sport, iconic products. What are my values? What do I stand for, believe in? What would I fall for? Because here's the thing, I'd certainly grab Māori culture when I felt it was right to grab something. Haka, rugby man, yeah, it's great. Pulfordy with visiting dignitaries, yeah, that seems appropriate. But I don't know how to do a haka. I can't speak to the Māori. Why have I not challenged uh, who I am within the space within essentially what is a Māori country? That journey is forever. Because I'm not Māori. I can be in a Māori environment and still feel inside me a sense of uh, foreignness, uncomfortableness, lost. Mm. I want to get back to you, Andrew, and we're going to unpack a whole lot that's in there because it's a powerful, powerful testimony. But before we go on too long, I want to ask Meredith, who are you? Because you've had a long journey to, to discover that yourself, right? Kia ora, yeah. Uh, kia ora koutou. Um, who am I? Um, I'm 48 years of age. I know, I look quite young. Um, <coughs> um, I, I've, I've spent much of my life uh, trying to figure out who am I um, because in my childhood in the space of growing up in Tairawhiti and, and York Street, Puhikaiti, um, I was just a New Zealand kid uh, growing up in a neighbourhood with other New Zealand kids. Uh, we were born in New Zealand or in Gisborne and um, so I didn't really think uh, th that there was some notion around my race, my, um, my gen genetics or any of that um, until I went through school and teachers would look at me and say, where on earth did you get a name like Meredith Maddock? Uh, Maddox's my maiden name, um, which I thought as a teacher that was probably a really dumb question because don't your parents name you? <laughs> Did they not know that? I'm, I'm certainly not going to say I named me because I've never liked my name, but at the end of the day I, um, um, I found out I was a Māori when I was 11 because we went to Whangara Marae as a school trip and as part of that trip they gave, me a, uh, gave us all a pepeha uh, to fill out and I can recall going home to my mother and saying to her, are we Africans? Because it asked what our tribe was. And I'd only thought tribe was African. So I was kind of proud of the notion I could be African. Uh, but I, of course it meant my iwi affiliation. And at the time, I'd, my mother and my father had never talked about any of this type of discussion. It just never came up in the discussion ever. And so I, she said kind of just off the cuff, oh, you're Tainui, which I, I had no idea what that meant. Um, so my dad was Welsh and English, um, he was born in Timaru and he met my mum in Auckland and she's Scottish Māori um, and my mum had put aside all things Māori 
and embrace the Pākehā world because that's what she was told to do. So I was raised very English, as my dad's English, and um, learned to speak proper English um, and certainly didn't grow up knowing any of my Māori roots or anything to do with who I was as a Māori, yet all my life I was treated, I guess, like a Māori, um, which I couldn't understand. I, I just saw people as people and I was just raised to respect people. Um, we were kind of taught children were seen and not heard. <laughs> um, a whole lot of English rhetoric was my life story. So at the tender age of 37, I um, was studying, and as part of my study, I had to learn my pepeha, which I thought was a waste of time. I challenged the tutor. I said to her, why do I have to learn that? Does that get you a job interview? And she said, uh, no. <laughs> I think it'd be good for you to look into. So I rang up my mother and said, oh, mum, I have to learn my pepeha. Can you help me out? Tatarangi te maunga. It's the Kaiti Hills where I grew up, under that maunga. It sustained me, so it was all good. Huranga tawa, beautiful little awa that I used to swim and jump off the bridge. And uh, Ngāti Onioni was my hapu. Very proud of that. They were the first people to meet with James Cook's men. I was all good with that. And subsequently, my mum wrote me a lovely letter saying, uh, Karioi te maunga. So I thought, oh, Karioi must be Gadam Sol's Māori name. Cool. Because <laughs> that's the only other hill I used to play in when I was a kid. I always wonder what its Māori name was. Sweet. Whangaroa te moana. Oh, that must be near Whangara. I love Whangara. I've never really heard of that place, but it sounds like it's near Whangara. Because, uh, you know, I'm so staunch, Ngāti Paro. And uh, then I uh, got down to uh, Whangaro te marae. And I was thinking, Ira Harry. Uh, te poho o Rauri is my marae because my grandparents were Rauris. It's got my name on it. So I didn't see it what makes the, sense. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking, Waingaro, these are hot springs. I went to once as a child as you go towards Raglan, called Waingaro. Yeah. And so I rang up my mother and I said, am I not from here? And she said, no. I said, what do you mean, no? What? <laughs> what do you mean I'm not from here? I'm not from, t- I'm, I'm not here. Well, well, you know, I was just in an absolute shocked, horrified notion. And I said, to her, what are we doing here? What am I doing here then? Well, when she told me I was from Hamilton, I went, <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, nah, there's two cities I've never liked, Hamilton and Palmerston North. <laughs> Go figure, I'm from both those parts of this world. Oh, man. So I was gutted. I was like, no way, but I have got puppy here, so don't panic, people. <laughs> parts of this land is mine, because um, um, I looked into it. <laughs> I um, went back to um, my, my background, uh, Kaiti, and I said to Nanny, Rawini God bless her soul, I miss her. She said to me, I uh, said to her, Nanny, I'm not from here. And she said, I know. <laughs> I was, Is it the here? Boy. I said, she goes, we whangaied you years ago. And I cried, because I was like, oh, yay. Um, so I've been here all my life, and I totally believed that I was from here. Tuturu Kaiti, Pui Kaiti Groomy. It's the place that I feel the most at home. So to learn my papa was a shock. Um, and then, it, of course, I looked into it some more, and as it happens, I'm related to the Māori king, so it made sense. And 
on my English side, I go back to King George and on my Welsh, uh, Prince of Wales. So grew up in York Street. It just all started to make sense, really. I was thinking, oh, gosh, bloody, there's blue blood in those names. So, um, seems, I've, seems I've omitted a few things in the introductions here, but I, I apologise um, because uh, we have royalty amongst us. But, um, but I, I want to ask a further personal question. You said you were shocked to hear these things. You've learnt these things. Have you spoken to your mother and your grandmother about their experience? Because in a certain sense, what you're saying is they had to unlearn them. They suppressed it. They didn't pass it on. That's a very different and more tragic experience. Yeah. <laughs> Learning that my mother's real name is Marewai Kitarangi after her great-great-grandmother from Wairarapa, uh, Kahununu. But my mother's midwife, uh, the nurse, couldn't say it. So my mother's name was changed to Maria. And so all my life I never knew my mum's real name until I was 37. And I had to talk to her and see the pain that she had to, I guess, unpack for herself, not realising what we'd inherit, what's her legacy to us as her children, when she can't talk of it because it brings back a lot of painful memories for her and also of her, her mum, who was uh, one of the most um, loved nannies of Turanga Waiwai and uh, Waingaro and other marae in the Waikato. Taupiri is another one of my um, manepoto um, space. So to not know this for me, yeah, I, do I connect to it now? Is it too late? <laughs> but no, of course it's never too late. This is who I am. This is a part of my, my, my being. And for my children's sake, so for my daughter's 21st birthday present, we're giving her the name Mariwai Kitarangi as a gift because it's a gift. It's a beautiful name. It's my nanny's name, my great-grandmother's name. And, you know, she lived to be like 105. That plant-based diet, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, people are wanting to do it again. See us, Māori, we carry a whole lot of knowledge. <laughs> people have just been, you know, not willing to let us share it. We've just been trying to share all this time. But So, um, yeah, so, um, and I want my children to carry uh, the, the papa names of, of all the stories that I'm learning now. My middle name is Waimaria. My mum gave me that name from Mihi Wai and um, Mariwai Kitarangi. She created that name as such, but... So I have both my nanny's names. So um, I want my kids to have those names now. This edition of Awkward Conversations features two speakers well qualified to discuss how we define ourselves and think of others. The self-proclaimed recovering racist Andrew Judd and the Gisborne local body candidate Meredith Akuhata-Brown. We're talking in front of an audience at Smash Palace in Gisborne at an event created through partnership with the Teha Trust as part of the Tuya 250 Kituranga event, which marks the 250th anniversary of the first contact between Europeans and Māori. I'm Alex Perrottet in the chair for this RNZ recording. Do you think we've dealt with this enough? I mean, we're commemorating 250 years since the, you know, the Europeans first arrived and we're looking at ways we can improve things and move forward. Um, but there's always that feeling of, well, have we, have we dealt with the past properly? And, and perhaps it's only in recent histories that have been written um, that, that things like this have come to light. The te reo was was so discouraged, it was beaten out of people. I mean, how, how far back and, and how deep do we need to go to, to bring these things to light, to dig them up um, so that we can very uncomfortably face them um, and make that part of this commemoration so that we can properly move forward? Do you think we, we need to do a lot more there? 
Oh, oh absolutely. I, you know, there's no doubt in my mind for my children's future to have meaning, to have sus sustenance, to have a sense of, of absolute belonging and knowledge. Um, we need to dig up uh, the roots. We need to get to the heart of the matter. And in the heart of that matter is that this nation had, um, has, has done something significantly wrong and not allowing a culture to thrive and be and, and live and be and be outspoken and free. It likes parts of it at certain times. The poor hoodie comes in handy, right? But at the end of the day, there's a lot more to being a Māori for even me to unpack and understand in the urbanised space that I've, I am an urban Māori um, who's put aside those things to just embrace the Pākehā world because if I do that, I'll be accepted a lot more. But I think... What the, what the New Zealand that I believe is, is wanting now is truth, is understanding, is compassion and empathy that says a whole lot of really, really wrong things were done to Māori. And this notion to just get over it, that was then, this is now, and all these frameworks, will never heal that. Which you get asked all the time, right? All the time. Uh, you, you, rep you represent a lot of people on the council, though, um, and, and there's a lot of work that you're doing there, but there's interactions all the time. And tell us about those interactions. And yeah, about we, we want to move on. Of course, we want to get to a true, wholesome, great community of, of just diverse culture in, in, this, in this bicultural platform. But when I get asked, how do you know that? Um, you know, I get, I get asked things in a way that isn't saying you're onto it. Oh, I had a lady say to me, you seem bright. I try. <laughs> I said I read good. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. Um, when I started my role as a councillor, I ran because at the time I felt there was a voice missing at the table of governance, which we all know in New Zealand, 4% at one point in time were Māori governance on, board, on councils, hospital boards, all of the space where everyone's working for Māori apparently. Um, and yet the table didn't have that voice. And then when that voice arrives at the table, you get things like, do you know what that means? Yes, I do know what that means, thank you. Do you? Maybe they were asking me because they didn't know. But I mean, you know, I, I'm constantly fighting to be heard. I'm fighting always to be understood that I do know and I do know a lot of things. If you give me the chance to explain, um, but I'm, I'm already boxed in as that person. I, I'm treated as that person all the time. And there's a whole lot of that person out there who know a lot, but just don't get a chance to share it because that person, we just keep over there. <laughs> we tokenistically allow them in at times and we give them a space now and again to share some views, but yeah. I'm a whole person. I've, I've got things to share and I know stuff. Which you can understand is so easy to happen when there's such minimal representation. I mean, Andrew, your time... On on the council, I think there's w there was one Maori um, at one particular time on the on the on the council. I I'm guessing there was a similar situation, and maybe at the time, for a lot of the time, you didn't see the issues that perhaps that that rep you know, representative had. I mean, how did you get to become mayor without getting? Yeah, got any tips? With, without. <laughs> How did you become mayor without first stepping onto a marae at all? How did you get to that age and that position? Yes, that's a great question. So I asked myself that, obviously, and one of the things that I reflect on is I did two terms as a councillor prior to camp running for mayoralty, and not one question in that period was 
anything to do with the Māori world in any way, shape or form. In fact, my ignorance went to the degree of, I remember sitting at a, we were debating something at a meeting and I asked a colleague, what's the difference between a hapu and an iwi? And I find in a lot of that space, whether it's generational, just my own narrow th- world that I'd come from, that I'm perhaps not alone there. Because a lot of, since saying this to people, a lot of Pākehā come to me and say, well, yeah, I heard you say about, I've never been on a marae either. I, I don't even know how. I don't know how to engage in that Māori world. It's really sad, right? And so um, in terms of representation, I mean, obviously the first thing that came was this question of Māori at the table. And what unfolded was the legislation that we have here around that, that process that's followed in this space. And, and I challenge it now. And it's not so much whether you think a Māori board is or isn't the best way to have a treaty relationship. It's the fact that legislation has been enshrined that should a council establish a Māori board seat, is it can establish a general seat or a rural seat, an urban seat, it is only the Māori seat that can be petitioned and removed. And I say to people, have you ever considered that that act is colonising? Because one thing I've never had to do in my life is look into the eyes of my children who and answer a question, Dad, why is the community petitioning us to be out of council because we're Pākehā? That would never happen, would it? But we have normalised the way we treat Māori in terms of representation. And so that's what I'm continuing to challenge at the time and now and around the fact we've given ourselves as Pākehā permission to do that is the challenge. Whether the seat is or isn't the best solution is another debate. But that's a colonising act. And most of us, we've normalised it to the point of thinking that's a right. I guess the default argument against your position is that, hey, well, look, the standard seats are open to everyone and so everyone's got an equal right and equal opportunity to, to, to find representation. I mean, how hard is it when you're trying to break through that worldview to people? What can we do in, in your generation to get more Andrew Judds out there? My challenge to Pākehā is, Pākehā, we are the problem. We always have been the problem. And every aspect of New Zealand's society and all the horrendous statistics that Māori are in, that is on the back of policies through European lens. Everything. Since Cook arrived in the establishment of the systems that we have, it's all been dominated from my worldview. In fact, everything's been designed by Andrew for Andrew. We're also the solution. The challenge is that it starts within yourself. Because that's all I did, was to challenge myself in ways that I'd never even occurred to do. Because for the first time in my life, I found myself in a marae. I found myself feeling something that I'd never felt before. Pain, actually, hearing and seeing and looking into the eyes of Māori of everything they have to deal with. Why did I block it out? Why did it feel natural to block that out? I knew something was wrong. In fact, if I was really honest, I knew it had been wrong all my life. I just didn't know how to tap into it because I somehow didn't want to be responsible for something that I would term wasn't my fault or my doing. But in fact, it is. Because by staying quiet and by ignoring looking at myself, I was kind of condoning what was done in our past. Māori can't fix what's broken in this respect. And Pākehā, we have to challenge each other in an awkward way 
around what not only what our ancestors did, but the benefits and the privileges that we have from it. Like petitioning to remove the voice of Māoridom. That act alone, to hold that pen and to decide where the Māori can have a say. I just say pause and think what you're actually doing. And, and what Andrew's talking about is, is the impacts generation to generation. When you see young Māori people in our region who have just really simply given up, our statistics for suicide in this region are horrendous. And, you've, and that's the impact of, of not ever feeling that anything's really going to change. Because if the system works for you, and if it's designed by you to work for you, you don't want it to change. It, it's fine the way it is. You've got to fit into that. You, you work out how you'll work with this, which we all know for the last decades, um, his, well, the last 250 years, frankly, um, Māori um, haven't thrived in, this, in the school system, haven't thrived in the justice system, haven't thrived in the health system, because the systems weren't designed for us to thrive. They just weren't. And, and we've been trying really hard and we get thrown a bone every now and again to, to chew on that might work, um, but it won't because it's a pretend agreement because it's always going to be based on that which works for some, those that designed it. And, and that's what, it's, it's heartbreaking because we all generally want the same thing. We all do want our young people, our children, our mokopuna, everyone to, to get the best out of this world, to get the best life and to have the best um, memories, thoughts, kind of hopes, dreams, aspirations as humans. We all say we, we'd all want that. That's not, not a no-brainer. But there's just a constant theme that says generation to generation, for some it just simply won't ever be. Your, the system won't work for you. So as Andrew said, we have to decide now to act because I don't want to see another 250 years of the same. It's time for that to not be our story. It can't be our story anymore. My daughter's at university. She's at Victoria University. She applied for five unis and she got into all five. She gets her brains from her mother. Um, <laughs> and so she applied um, and she got in to the uni she chose, Victoria University. And she's studying and doing really well. And a, a student comes up to her, a New Zealand Park here student, says, oh, you're that Maori. And, and Kenya, my daughter's name is Kenya, um, she says... Excuse me, what do you mean by that? What, what, what is that? <laughs> she says, you're the scholarship Maori. See, that's that remnant of, you know, the, the bursaries and the, the, the unequal way that, again, the system tried to fix something. Let's give them some, some bursaries. To, you know, so then people see it as uneven. Why is that Maori getting that? Well, it, it's been trying to make up, it, and it does these little moments of history where we, we tried to fix something by doing that, which we made it even worse because then people saw it as uneven and Māoris are getting the benefits, the perks and all of that. Um, but my daughter never got a bursary or any. She didn't. She merely worked hard to get into university. And uh, so she said, no, I didn't get a scholarship. And the kid just shrugged and walked off. Um, so I, I want the next generation to, that's not a part of a conversation. It's merely, hi, how, how's university going for you? You enjoying it, you know? Why does it have to constantly be, you're a Māori, this must have yeah. happened? And you're talking about their um, government policy. I guess you must find it frustrating because you uh, represent governance at a, at a, at a, at a lower level. Uh, you're, you're more in touch with people on the ground. 
what do you see as local solutions, grassroots solutions um, that can be promoted to change those attitudes more effectively? Thank you for that question. Uh, grassroots, that's what I'm all about. Um, <laughs> um, the solutions are, in, you know, again, in these, these great conversations like we are having now, uh, the solutions in the grassroots spaces are that if we talk to those that the system keeps trying to fix, actually have a conversation. I remember hearing an interview with um, Russell Bishop who said about the te kotahitanga uh, framework. He was working with young people and asking young people why the school system didn't appear to work for them and why they, the dropout rates. And, and he found a whole lot of research and data to present to this space. And one of the questions the reporter was, was how did you know what these young people wanted? And he said, I asked them. <laughs> I was thinking, ah, there it is. How about we ask everyday people? How about we make things more accessible? Because what we do in the system is that we make politics mostly quite, well, boring um, or just plain uninteresting to the average citizen. If you were to ask a citizen in, in our region, what does the mayor do? Or what is a councillor's role? What, what does council do? There's a large portion of the, the general public who have no idea. Because we've created a space where a group of people go, oh, well, I might look into that. And it's been the same group for the past 20, 30, 40 years. The same people run for council. And they've governed New Zealand for the longest of time. So if we really want to change things up, like when I ran for council in my first term, the very main thing that was said to me was, Meredith, you won't get in on your first go because you're Māori and you're a woman. And I was thinking, no way, that's not true. Not now in 2013. We've progressed a long way. We've, you know, that surely isn't the case. But when I went to my first national conference, the room was full of the same-looking people, and I was the standout. Not because of my good looks, but I just, yeah, I just didn't look like everybody else. And when I go to those places, I'm often looked at as, is she the help? Has she broken in here? Is she gate-crashing? which sometimes is the case, but um, is she, who, how did she get in here? <laughs> There's, I get that feeling. People come up to me and they're like, kia ora, I'm Andrew Judd, Mayor of Taranaki. Oh, kia ora, I'm Meredith Akara-Brown, I'm a Gisborne District Councillor. Really? Why is that such a, 2013? But that's, that's what I de dealt with constantly. So I guess for me, the solution is that we have to get a better handle on citizenship and what it means to be a citizen in this nation. We don't learn that at school. I don't meet too many 18-year-olds who go, yes, I can vote. Mostly, yes, I can get drunk. Quite a lot, uh, you know, uh, more. But um, where do we learn any of that? Where do, we, where do we get some sense of what it means to be a citizen that has a role in making society, neighbourhoods, communities, regions uh, strong and connected and, and caring and kind and compassionate? We create little boxes of worlds and we talk about silos and all of that. We, we don't actually get down to the grassroots of the matter of neighbourhoods where we played in the streets and nobody cared who was rich or poor. We just all played. You know, children are the greatest settlers of, of just most things. They just get to it, you know. I asked a bunch of uh, kids from uh, Kaiti, if you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? And all these kids from this deprivation 10 neighbourhood said, we give it to the poor. Like, wow, there it is. They don't think they're poor. They, what is that concept of poor? What does that mean? And, and so I think 
um, the, the solutions in the grassroots are really in everyday citizens who actually see their role as citizens counting for something, having meaning. You know, our way, our way we do that is the vote. Every three years it rolls along and all of a sudden there's an election and billboards go up and you kind of think, oh, yeah, and then all the non-voters go, oh, that's right, we'll go and tag that board tomorrow or whatever. Uh, I'm not engaged in this process. I don't even know these people. I don't know why this happens, but every three years it does. And yet we still have a large portion of our society not engaged in it. That shouldn't be the case. You know, when you look at democracies across the globe, that are going through these protests, these deaths, these, all these crazy things that are going on. Our New Zealand could be a leader in democracy. We've got, we've got it here, but we just aren't, we've still got people who want it for them, for this group, not that group. So I want to change that. And so I believe that participation, participatory democracy, grassroots, the answers lie in the grassroots and the everyday people and the people that haven't participated because no one asked them. I, I had met with a group of residents uh, in our neighbourhoods and um, at a park, and I just said, let's dream, let's vision for what this neighbourhood could become. And I grew up here and let's do this kind of thing. And the very first thing that people said to me in that park, I had 60 residents show up, they said, are we allowed to do this? Hmm. I said, what? this is your place, this is your citizens of New Zealand. You have every right to want things like a, a good footpath, a decent playground. But they'd never ever had their voices heard. No one had ever asked them before. And so why would they participate, you know? And so we need to make it a little bit more innovative, creative, but we need to say your citizenship counts. You're listening to RNZ and the second of a series of awkward conversations mounted in association with the Taha Trust as part of the Tuia 250 Kituranga event, marking the 250th anniversary of the first contact between Europeans and Māori. Here at Smash Palace in Gisborne with me, Alex Perrottet, are the self-proclaimed recovering racist Andrew Judd and the outspoken Gisborne local body candidate Meredith Akuhata-Brown. I often think about travelling to the islands. You know, I've been to the islands a fair bit, and it's wonderful. And you get there, and you might have a carver ceremony in in Fiji, and you, and you lap up everything about it, and you think, wow, that was a really, really th- thoroughly enriching experience, cultural experience. You know, and then you and then you come back home, and you think, wow, you know, do, do we need to visit ourselves? <laughs> do do we need to visit the communities that might be right next door, the marae that might be down the street? What stops us, or in a certain sense, what causes us to build those silos or keep them there, Andrew? Well, for me, it's legislation that doesn't actually actively bring us together. Um, oh, we're about to have council votes. Um, here's the form to stop those Maoris having a say. I mean, what do we teach people about who we are? So we have, I would say, it's true, it's not my view of the world, we have active things that divide us where it should be including us. You know, we've got an MMP situation where we have to compromise certain things. So it's us that has to change. We have to reflect a different requirement, a standard of what we expect, who we want to be. And as Pākehā, we've got a journey to go because what hasn't perhaps been delved into is how we're going to react as slowly we become a minority because that's what potentially is going to happen. How are we going to deal with that? Because we've never experienced that. And so I come back to again, leaders in each other here today. Because there's layers, like 
when you talk about Andrew going to a marae, I, I wasn't raised on a marae. I wasn't, it wasn't a place I felt at home on. I, I was foreign world. I, I felt totally comfortable in a Pākehā world because I was raised New Zealand Pākehā. I was, and I didn't. I went through pōhiri processes like any student who goes through that space when a school gathering of sorts. My first tangihanga I went to was when I was 27. And I only went to one day of that event, so technically I haven't actually ever been to a full tangihanga because um, it, was, it wasn't something that our family ever discussed or I, I never went to my grandmother's funeral because there's layers of, of disconnection for Māori depending on who your Māori whānau are. Like, I've grown up with my friends who speak te reo fluently and they go to the marae regularly. They go to every tangihanga. They are the ringawero. You know, they have roles. They have things that I've, I've been envious of. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm totally <laughs> in foreign kind of worlds um, when I go there, yet everyone's looking at me going, you want to do the karanga? <laughs> I'm like, what? Um, Judge Himi Taumanu set up the first initiative, the Rangatahi Koti here in Te Pōrauri. And um, I worked with youth. And so uh, my name was put forward to work with the Rangatahi on the marae. Um, and as part of my my role was to help them learn their pepeha. And uh, most of the kids, I knew their families. So it was easy for me to go, oh, I know your nanny, or, you know, as far as growing up here goes. But the very first marae court sitting on Te Pōrauri, judge said to me, you're going to do the karanga. I was just about died. I was just like, um, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And he, he wasn't going to let me get away with it. I had to do it. And the only reason I did it was because the lady calling me home was nanny Rawani at the kani. And... And I knew she knew how I felt. I knew she was going, oh, Mere. <laughs> you know, she was all loving. And I did it. But I said to him, Judge, I only know three karanga mais. That was all I knew. The <laughs> rest of it I'd make up, just like two teramai na iwi. Um, I was to make up the words. You know, again, it was just my upbringing. And um, so I, I busted out my three karanga mais with all I had. And thank goodness Nanny Ra called us on. But um, at the end of the day, there's layers of um, the impacts of colonisation on Māori whānau and on parts of the regions of the country where, again, knowing that iwi have different pro protocol. I didn't know that there was different languages. You know, I learned this at a hui where this woman keeps going on about the ware paku and the, oh, she says something without an H every time she speaks. And I'm going, what's up with that? Where are you from? And she's from Whanganui. And they don't say the H. And so I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And then I hear this other woman speak and she doesn't say the nga. And I'm listening and going, where, where is she from? She's Tuhoi. So, you know, again, I'm learning as I go at 30 years of age plus that there's a whole different dialect happening around the place that I didn't know. So, you know, I look like an absolute, what does that mean for me? How do I cope with that? And when there's so many people, that, that's, that, that's just a given, Meredith. That's why we talk about Ngāti Parautanga. And, and these layers you talk about, do you see yourself perhaps in a position of advantage, in a sense, if you're talking to Pākehā, because you're in that layer where um, you're exposed to, to Māoridom and, and, and to ao Māori, um, but in a sense, from a Pākehā perspective, right? I mean, from where you've come from, can you connect better with Pākehā to say, hey, come on, come with me, come on this ride, this adventure. We're going to find out more about it and, and how good it is and, and dive into, with a, with a bit of empathy, someone else's worldview? 
Well, when I went to uh, the chair of our ethics committee um, one day to tell him that, you know, in one of our hui, one of our council meetings, I'd written down about 15 racist comments, um, just things like, why have the buses got Wakakura written on them? I was like, is it says school bus, it's school bus, eh? you know, or, you know, Maori are just lay people, they don't have any schools. A uh, whole bunch of rhetoric around the table said, and then I said, man, this is unreal. Um, so I went to the chair of ethics to say, look, um, it concerns me, it's, you know, it's 2015. If you don't like Māori, why would you live in Tairawhiti? We've got the highest populations in Māori. We sign an oath that we will represent the views of everybody who lives here. That's our job as representative-elect. Um, and he said, oh, Meredith, just ignore it. Don't worry about it. I said, well, I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to ignore it either. It shouldn't happen. This is, shouldn't be what should be spoken about around this table. He goes, you know what your problem is? I wasn't expecting that. I was like, well, okay, teach me, oh, great one. <laughs> What's my problem? And he said, you have a lot of Pākehās who like you. So I guess when you say, you know, I, I, I do, I connect to Pākehā very well. I feel very comfortable in a Pākehā world because that's the world I grew up in. But, yeah, it's not always the case that they like me. Um, they're kind of intrigued by me. <laughs> but um, influencing anybody to just think about what they say and what they th- where does it come from? Like, where's the inherent... My dad was a racist. He told me that Māori's had blue tongues. I have no idea to this day what that meant or anything, but I was always a bit scared to look. Should any Māori have a blue tongue? But I, I had no idea what he was on about. I really didn't, but I was told I wasn't Māori. So I grew up with the viewpoint that I won't be Māori because there must be something wrong with being Māori. So I'll hang out with all the Pākehā kids at school and I'll just I'll fit in. And that's what I've always done. So... To learn that I'm Māori, to learn that that makes me a whole person, I'm really proud of that because it makes sense to me now to be who I really am. But it's a journey and it's a hard journey because I don't, know, I don't have to just deal with things Māori but in the Pākehā world. But I know where I can stand in the Pākehā world, so I'm, I'm all good. It's a lot of our rangatahi that don't grow up in either world fitting in where do I belong. Whereas I, I, I know this is a space I feel comfortable in because I've known it the longest. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not jumping ship. I'm just becoming more whole and more me. Fascinating. We're going to get to some questions because there might be some people here that have a similar experience or, or might describe about where exactly they feel they sit um, or, or have questions to Andrew and Meredith. So if there's some hands up, we can, uh, we can have some of your questions now. Kia ora tato. Um, Andrew, would you do it again? Well, I absolutely would do it again. I feel so blessed in my life to, to come to terms with my ignorance, my racism, my f- unjust fear. I've discovered a world that's just so beautiful and it was always around me. And so I feel empowered to, uh, to I guess, <laughs> evangelically spread the word to say, you know, I talk about where the problem, I, I also say we're the solution. The, the future, to me, I'm so optimistic, it's exciting. If we can just challenge ourselves, I would definitely do it again. I just wish I'd realised at a younger age. Andrew, you would do it again. Is it ever too late? <laughs> Is it ever too late for someone to challenge that? Because I guess people feel that they've got a lot to lose. It was the same sort of thing that Meredith would have gone through at the age of 37. Um, are, are they diving into a, a new pool that they won't be able to get out of? Are they pushing through something into the unknown? Uh, it's, it, it, you're in a position of incredible vulnerability there. You've done that. Um, is it just a 
a matter of getting enough of you through the other side to drag the rest of us through. Where do you, where do you see it? Well, it is a challenge. Of course, it's challenging because, you know, I took on the biggest, most ignorant racist of all, and that was myself. And having gone, to be completely honest, in, in a public way, um, obviously not everyone can do that because it is there's so many layers to this, and we're all at different levels. And I talk about if you think of a building called Utopia, which is the top floor, there are people that will get off at different levels with me. You'll start off on the same page with the same, but eventually things will come, and it's almost like a tsunami of I can sense it coming, and it's this whole here it comes, here it comes, and it's yeah, but. You know, yeah, but either they don't help themselves, or yeah, but this, or yeah, but that. So it's really in all our DNA. It's going to be massive to unwind, I know. But it starts, and I came back to, starts with a new. It has to, because only you can change. It doesn't matter if you agree with me or like me or whatever. It's what you think of yourself and how you've reacted as a New Zealander, because that talks to who you are, not me. I'm being honest with who I've found myself to be. And we have to change, because we're broken. And if you don't believe me, look at the stats that Māori are in. Listen to the stories. That's horrible. Who are we? What have we done? More importantly, what are we going to do to fix it? And I know that's hard, but to do nothing is worse. Far worse. Are there parts of New Zealand, geographically, that you think uh, are lagging behind, that, that because of their particular demographic makeup? Um, there might be more at risk. I mean, we, we talk a lot about Auckland and how Auckland's changing rapidly and, um, and incredible migration means that there's this great melting pot and, and we'd like it to be this utopian multiculturalism and hopefully it'll get there. But are there other parts of New Zealand that you think, wow, they really may get left behind? So I can I just share a couple of anecdotes on that. So yes, I mean, the previous speakers talked about Auckland, but for me, Auckland is it's unique in its own right. So I'm not from there. I can only talk about New Plymouth, obviously, but I was invited to Invercargill by a church to be the catalyst for a new conversation. This pastor rang me up. He'd heard what I'd said and said it would be great for me to start a conversation because we need to take a cultural journey as a congregation. And so, um, long story short, picks me up from the airport on the way to the hotel. says, could you make the, the first conversation a little less about the racist stuff because I'm getting pushback from my church elders as to why you're here. And I said, well, opportunity. And so he um, introduced me as the, the controversial ex-mayor of New Plymouth which is, you know, okay. Um, but I posed to the congregation, what do you think that I did, or our council did, that makes me controversial? And there was no answer. Because the truth is, we invited Māori to the table. And it comes back to your other point around stand in your own right, it's race-based privilege, all this. Um, it's actually treaty-based. I agree you should not have race-based seats. Thankfully, it's not. It's treaty-based. We have an obligation to each other. But further to that, take in mind the audience as Christians, are we not all God's children? And so to ignore Māori is surely to ignore your own God, right? What are we so scared of? What, what makes me controversial about trying to bring us together? And it's that fear. The thing is, I identify with that fear. I was raised to have that fear. It's so sad. I asked a couple of my really um, learned academic uh, Pākehā friends, if they've ever gone on a journey to unpack in their history, in their, in their kind of genetic coding, as to where they learnt to think they know everything. 
like like is there you know is there a disposition in a cultural context that says you 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 do have the power and in a Roman Empire kind of notion um you know of, of governing and ruling as such there you know in, in humans <laughs> in the history of the world there's always been the dominance you know conquering uh you know people groups as such and you know and they both laughed at me saying oh, of course we haven't done that but you know I said well you should go and look into it um because like Andrew says we we all know deep in our kind of in our inner human space of 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 who we are as just human is we all want really the same things we want we want to create a world that is safe that um you, you know you can speak your truth and and we can have these conversations but there's just still a constant constant noted that that's just not seemingly going to happen so I see the commemoration space of 250 as an absolute opportunity to say we what is the New Zealand we want to be part of and be proud of for the future for the children for the you know for all the things we often say and we we as adults you know have this wonderful notion of um, the, the the future generations inheriting leaders come and go but what's their legacy what do they leave behind? And and I want to be part of a, an absolute hope of um, everyone given a chance to to be themselves, to be fully themselves, to know their language, to know who they are, because it it makes for a well society. It makes for good things. Everybody wins, and yet we still have a group of people that seem to say, "No, we must win." It must always be us that wins. But in them winning, everyone loses. So it's it's not about us and them anymore. It's about a we. It's about an owl. And um, I, I just want it to not be about race all the time, that this constantly comes up. I want it to be about us as a human race who have learned a lot about each other and we've got knowledge now. We've got um, a whole bunch of story. Um, we know better. So let's do something with that. The action part is now because I don't want another 250 years of the same. It just can't happen. Not on my watch anyway, but that's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> that's a wonderful place to leave it. I think we're going to have to draw it to a close, but thank you for being part of this awkward conversation. I don't think it was very awkward, but there's <laughs> certainly challenges there. Andrew in particular has uh, laid down some pretty clear challenges about how things like legislation and uh, structures in particular need to change around governance um, and from the grassroots of course so many things that have to be done it's going to be an exciting rest of the year as we com commemorate um, or celebrate or whatever term we want to use um, yeah commiserate as well and that has to happen I'm sure and that and, you know, as awkward as it might be but thanks for everyone for being part of this awkward conversation uh, please put your hands together for our guests Andrew Judd and Meredith Akahata Brown.